Short Stories by O. Henry 1. Memoirs of a Yellow Dog I don't suppose it will knock any of you people off your perch to read a contribution from an animal. Mr. Kipling and a good many others have demonstrated the fact that animals can express themselves in remunerative English, and no magazine goes to press nowadays without an animal story in it, except the old-style monthlies that are still running pictures of Byron in horror stories. But you needn't look for any stuck-up literature in my piece, such as Beru the Bear and Snaku the Snake and Tamanu the Tiger talk in the Jungle Book. A yellow dog that spent most of his life in a cheap New York flat, sleeping in a corner of an old sateen skirt, the one she spilt port wine on at Lady Longshoreman's banquet, mustn't be expected to perform any tricks with the art of speech. I was born a yellow pup, date, locality, and pedigree, and weight unknown. The first thing I can recollect, an old woman had me in a basket on Broadway and 23rd, trying to sell me to a fat lady. Old Mother Hubbard was boosting me to beat the band as a genuine Pomeranian Red Irish China Stroke Pogus Fox Terrier. The fat lady chased a V around among the the samples of grain and flannelette in her shopping bag till she cornered it and gave up. From that moment I was a pet, a mama's own woodsy squidums. Say, gentle reader, did you ever have a two hundred pound woman breathing a flavor of camembert cheese and pick you up and wallop her nose all over you, remarking all the time, in an iman imi's tone of voice, Oh, ooze um oodum doolum woodum tootum bitsy witsy scootums. From pedigreed yellow pup, I grew up to be an anonymous yellow cur looking like a cross between an angora cat and a box of lemons. But my mistress never tumbled. She thought that the two primeval pups that Noah chased into the ark were but a branch of my ancestors. It took two policemen to keep her from entering me at the Madison Square Garden for the Siberian Bloodhound Prize. I'll tell you about that flat. The house was the ordinary thing in New York, paved with Parian marble in the entrance hall and cobblestones above the first floor. Our flat was three, well, not flights, climb-ups. My mistress rented it, unfurnished, and put in the regular things. 1903 antique upholstered parlor set. Oil chromo of Geisha in Harlem Tea House. Rubber plant and husband. By Cyrus, there was a bipped I felt sorry for. He was a little man with sandy hair and whiskers and a good deal like mine. Hinpecked well. Toucans and flamingos and pelicans all had their bills in him. He wiped the dishes and listened to my mistress tell about the cheap ragged things the lady with the squirrel-skin coat on the second floor hung out on her line to dry, and every evening, while she was getting supper, she made him take me out on the end of a string for a walk. If men knew how women pass the time when they are alone, they'd never marry. Laureline Libby, Peanut Brittle, 
a little almond cream, and a neck muscle. Dishes, unwashed, half an hour's talk with the Iceman, reading a package of old letters, a couple of pickles, two bottles of malt extract, one hour peeking through a hole in the window shade into the flat across the air shaft. That's about all there is to it. Twenty minutes before time, for him to come home from work, she straightens up the house, fixes her rat so it won't show, and gets out a lot of sewing for a ten-minute bluff. I led a dog's life in that flat. Most all day I lay there in my corner watching that fat woman kill time. I slept sometimes and had pipe dreams about being out-chased cats into the basement and growling at old ladies with black mittens, as a dog was intended to do. Then she would pounce upon me with a lot of driveling poodle palaver and kiss me on the nose. But what could I do? A dog can't chew cloves. I began to feel sorry for hubby. Dog my cats if I didn't. We looked so much alike that people noticed it when we went out. So we shook the streets that Morgan's cab drivers down and took to climbing the piles of last December snow on the streets where cheap people live. One evening, when we were thus promenading, and I was trying to look like a prize, St. Bernard, the old man was trying to look like he wouldn't have murdered the first organ grinder he heard playing Mendelssohn's Wedding March. I looked up at him and said to my, in my own way, what are you looking so sour about, you oakum-trimmed lobster? She don't kiss you. You don't have to sit on her lap and listen to talk that would make the book of a musical comedy sound like a maxims of Epicutus. You ought to be thankful you're not a dog. Brace up, Benedict, and bid the blues be gone. The matrimonial mishaps looked down at me with almost canine intelligence in his face. Why, doggy, he said. Good doggy, you almost look like you could speak. What is it, doggy? Is it a cat? Cats could speak. But of course, he couldn't understand. Humans were denied the speech of animals. The only common ground of communication upon which dog and man can get together is in fiction. In the flat across the hall from us lived a lady with a black and tan terrier. Her husband strung it and took it out every evening. But he always came home cheerful and whistling. One day I touched noses with the black and tan in the hall. See here, wiggle and skip. I say... You know it ain't the nature of a real man to play dry nurse to a dog in public. I never saw one lashed to a bow-wow yet that didn't look like he'd like to lick every other man that looked at him. But your boss comes in every day as perky and sets up as an amateur prestidigitator doing the egg trick. How does he do it? Don't tell me he likes it. Him? says the black and tan. Why, he uses nature's own remedy. He gets spiffelcated. At first, when we go out, he's as shy as the man on the streamer who would rather play Pedro when they make him all jackpots. By that time, we've been in eight saloons. 
He don't care whether the thing on the end of his line is a dog or a catfish. I've lost two inches of my tail trying to sidestep those swinging doors. The pointer I got from the terrier, vaudeville please copy, set me to thinking. One evening, about six o'clock, my mistress ordered him to get busy and do the ozone act for lovely. I have concealed it until now, but that is what she called me. The black and tan was called tweetness. I consider that I have the bulge on him as far as you could chase a rabbit. Still, lovely is something of a nomenclator tin can on the tail of one's self-respect. At a quiet place on a safe street, I tightened the line of my custodian in front of an attractive refined saloon. I made a dead, a head scramble for the door, whining like a dog in the press dispatches that lets the family know that little Alice is bogged while gathering lilies in the brook. Why, darn my eyes, said the old man with a grin. Darn my eyes if the saffron-colored son of a seltzer lemonade ain't asking me in to take a drink. Let me see. How long it's been since I saved shoe leather by keeping one foot on the footrest? I believe I'll... I knew I had him. Hot Scots he took. Sitting at a table, for an hour he kept the Campbells coming. I sat by his side, rapping for the waiter with my tail, and eating free lunch, such as Mamma in her flat never equaled with her handmaid truck bought at a delicatessen store eight minutes before Papa comes home. When the products of Scotland were all exhausted except for the rye bread, and an old man unwound me from the table leg and played me outside like a fisherman plays a salmon. Out there he took off my collar and threw it into the street. Poor doggy, says he. Good doggy. She shan't kiss you any more. She's darn shame. Good doggy. Go away. Get run over by a streetcar and be happy. I refused to leave. I leapt and frisked about the old man's leg, happy as a pug on a rug. You old flea-headed woodchucker chaser, I said to him. You moon-baying rabbit-pointing, egg-stealing old beagle. Can't you see that I don't want to leave you? Can't you see that you're were both pups of the woods, and that the missus is the cruel uncle after you with the dish towel, and me with the flea liniment and pink bow to tie on my tail. Why not cut that all out and be pards forevermore? Maybe you'll say he didn't understand. Maybe he didn't. But he kind of got the grip on the hot scotches, and stood still for a minute thinking. Doggy, says he finally, we don't live more than a dozen lives on this earth. Very few of us live to be more than three hundred. If I ever see that flat any more, I'm a flat. And if you do your flatter, that's no flattery. I'm offering sixty to one that westward ho wins out by the length of a dachshund. There was no string, 
but I flolicked about with my master in the twenty-third street ferry, and the cats on the route saw reason to give thanks that prehensile claws had been given to them. On the Jersey side, my master said to a stranger who stood eating a currant bun, Me and my doggie were bound for the Rocky Mountains. But what pleased me most was when my old man pulled both my ears until I howled and said, You come on, monkey-headed, rat-tailed, sulfur-colored son of a doormat. Do you know what I'm going to call you? I thought of lovely, and I whined dolefully. I'm going to call you Pete, says my master. And if I had five tails, I couldn't have done enough wagging to do justice to the occasion. Springtime a la carte. It was a day in March. Never, never begin a story this way when you're writing one. No opening could possibly be worse. It is unimaginative, flat, dry, and likely to consist of mere wind. But in this instance, it is allowable for the following photograph, which should have inaugurated the narrative, it too wildly extravagant and preposterous to be flaunted in the face of the reader without preparation. Sarah was crying over her bill of fare. Think of a New York girl shedding tears on a menu card. To account for this, you will be allowed to guess that the lobsters were all out, or that she had sworn ice cream off during Lent, or that she had ordered onions, or that she had just come from a Hackett matinee, and then all these theories being wrong, you will please let the story proceed. The gentleman who announced that the world was an oyster, which he, with his sword, would open, made a larger hit than he deserved. It is not difficult to open an oyster with a sword, but did you ever notice anyone try to open the terrestrial bivalve with a typewriter? Like to wait for a dozen raw open that way? Sarah had managed to pry apart the shells with her unhandy weapon far enough to nibble a wee bit at the cold and clammy world within. She knew no more shorthand than if she had been a graduate in stenography, just let slip upon the world by a business colleague. So, not being able to stenog, she could not enter that bright galaxy of Ovis' talent. She was a freelance typist and canvassed for odd jobs of copying. The most brilliant and crowning feat of Sarah's battle with the world was the deal she made with Schollenberg's home restaurant. The restaurant was next door to the old red brick in which she hall-roomed. One evening after dinner at Schollenberg's forty-cent five-course table a la carte served as fast as you throw the five baseballs at the gentleman's head, Sarah took away with her the bill of fare. It was written in an almost unreadable script neither English nor German, and so arranged that if you were not careful, you began with a toothpick and a rice pudding and ended with a soup and the day of the week. 
The next day, Sarah showed Schellenberg a neat card on which the menu was beautifully typewritten with the viands temptingly marshaled under their right and proper heads from the ardors to the not responsible for overcoats and umbrellas. Schollenberg became a naturalized citizen on the spot. Before Sarah left him, she had him willingly committed to an agreement. She was to furnish typewritten bills of fare for the 21 tables in the restaurant, a new bill for each day's dinner, and new ones for breakfast and lunch, as often as changed occurred in the food or as neatness required. In return for this, Schulenberg was to send three meals per diem to Sarah's hall room by a waiter, an asquies one if possible, and furnish her each afternoon with a pencil draft of what fate had in store for Schulenberg's customers on the morrow. Mutual satisfaction resulted from the agreement. Schulenberg's patrons now knew that the food they ate was called even if it even if its nature sometimes puzzled them and sarah had food during cold dull winter which was the main thing with her and then the almanac lied and said that spring had come spring comes when it comes the frozen snows of january still lay like adamant in the cross town streets the hand organ still played in the good old summer time with their December vivacity and expression. Men began to make 30-day notes to buy Easter dresses. Janitors shut off steam. And when these things happened, one may know that the city is still in clutches of winter. One afternoon, Sarah shivered in her elegant hall bedroom. House heated, scrupulously clean, conveniences seemed to be appreciated. She had no work to do except Schulenberg's menu cards. Sarah sat in her squeaky willow rocker and looked out of the window. The calendar on the wall kept crying to her, Springtime is here, Sarah, springtime is here. I tell you, look at me, Sarah. My figures show it. Why do you look out the window so sadly? Sarah's room was at the back of the house. Looking out of the window, she could see the windowless rear brick wall of the box factory on the next street, but the wall was clearest crystal, and Sarah was looking down at the grassy lane shaded with cherry trees and elms and bordered with raspberry bushes and Cherokee roses. Spring's real harbingers are too subtle for the eyes and ears. Some must have the flowering crocus and the wood-staring dogwood and the voice of bluebird, even so gross, a reminder as the farewell handshake of the retiring buckwheat and oyster before they can welcome the lady in green in their dull blossoms. But to old earth's choicest kind there come straight sweet messages from his newest bride, telling them they shall be no stepchild unless they choose to be. On the previous summer, Sarah had gone into the country and had befriended a farmer. In writing your story, never hark back thus. It is bad art and cripples interest. Let it march, march. 
Sarah stayed two weeks in Sunnybrook Farm. There she learned to love old farmer Franklin's son, Walter. Farmers have been loved and wedded and turned out to grass in less time, but young Walter Franklin was a modern agriculturist. He had a telephone in his cowhouse, and he could figure up exactly what effect next year's Canada wheat crop would have on the potatoes planted in the dark room in the dark of the moon. It was in this shaded and raspberry lane that Walter had wooed and won her, and together they had sat and woven a crown of dandelions for her hair. And she had left the chaplet there and walked back to the house, swinging her straw sailor in her hands. They were to marry in the spring, at the very first sign of spring, Walter said, and Sarah came back to the city to pound her typewriter. A knock at the door dispelled Sarah's visions of that day. A waiter had brought the rough pencil draft of the home restaurant's next day's fare in old Schulenberg's angular hand. Sarah sat down to her typewriter and slipped a card between the rollers. She was a nimble worker. Generally, in an hour and a half, the twenty-one menu cards were written and ready. Today, there were more changes on the bill of fare than usual. The soups were lighter. The pork was eliminated from the entree, figuring only with Russian turnips among the roast. The gracious spirit of spring pervaded the entire menu. Lamb that lately capered on the greening hillside was becoming exploited with a sauce of commemorated its gambols. The song of the oyster, though not silenced, was Dimundo con amore. The frying pan seemed to be held inactive behind the beneficent bars of the broiler. The pilus swelled, the richer puddings had vanished, and the sausage with the drapery wrapped about him barely lingered in a pleasant sauce with buckwheats and the sweet but doomed maple. Sarah's fingers danced like a midget above a summer stream. Down through the courses she worked, giving each item the position according to its length with an accurate eye. Just above the desserts came the list of vegetables, carrots and peas, asparagus on toast, the perennial tomatoes and corn and succotash, lima beans, cabbage, and then Sarah was crying over her bill of fare. Tears from the depths of some divine despair rose in her heart and gathered in her eyes. Down went her head on the little typewriter stand, and the keyboard rattled a dry accompaniment to her moist sobs. For she had received no letter from Walter in two weeks, and the next item on the bill of fare was dandelions. Dandelions with some kind of egg, but bother the egg. Dandelions, with whose golden blooms Walter had crowned her queen of love and future bride. Dandelions, the harbingers of spring, her sorrow's crown of sorrow, reminder of her happiest days. Madame, I dare you to smile until you suffer this test. Let the Merchel Neal's rose that Percy brought you on the night you gave him your heart be served as a salad with French dressing before your eyes at a Schoenberger's table. Had Juliet seen 
her love token dishonored, the sooner would she have sought the lethian herbs of the good apothecary. By and by, Sarah forced back her tears. The cards must be written. But still in a faint golden glow from her dandelion dream, she fingered the typewriter keys, absently for a little while, with her mind and heart in the meadow lane, with her young farmer, but soon she came swiftly back to the rock-boned lanes of Manhattan, and the typewriter began to rattle and jump like a strike-breaker's motor car. At six o'clock the waiter brought her dinner and carried away the typewritten bill of fare. When Sarah ate, she sat aside with a sigh, the dish of dandelions with its crowning ovarious accompaniments. As this dark mass had been transformed from a bright and love-endorsed flower to be an anonymous vegetable, so had her summer hopes wilted and perished. Love may, as Shakespeare said, feed on itself, but Sarah could not bring herself to eat the dandelions that had graced an ornament, the first spiritual bouquet of her heart's true affection. At 7.30, the couple in the next room began a quarrel, and the man in the room above sought for A on his flute. The gas went a little lower. Three coal wagons started to unload, the only sound of which the phonograph is jealous. Cats on the back fence slowly retreating towards Mukden. By these signs, Sarah knew that it was time for her to read. She got out the cloister and hearth, and the best non-selling book of the month settled her feet on her trunk and began to wander with Gerard. The front doorbell rang. The landlady answered it. Sarah looked up from her book. Gerard and Denny's treed by a bear and listened. Oh, yes, would you? Just as she did. And then a strong voice was heard in the hall below, and Sarah jumped to her door, leaving the book on the floor and the first round easily the bears. You have guessed it. She reached the top of the stairs just as her farmer came up, three at a jump, and reaped and garnered her with nothing left for the gleaners. Why haven't you written? Oh, why? cried Sarah. New York is a pretty large town, said Walter Franklin. I came in a week ago to your old address. I found that you went away on a Thursday. That consoled some. It eliminated the possible Friday bad luck. But it didn't prevent my hunting for you with police and otherwise ever since. I wrote, said Sarah vehemently. Never got it. Then how did you find me? The young farmer smiled a springtime smile. I dropped into the home restaurant next door this evening, he said. I don't care who knows it. I like a dish of some kind of greens at this time of year. I ran my eye down this nice typewritten bill of fare, looking for something in that line. When I got below cabbage, I turned my chair over and hollered for the proprietor. He told me where you lived. I remember, sighed Sarah happily, that was dandelions below cabbage. 
I'd know that cranky capital W way above the line your typewriter makes anywhere in the world, said Franklin. Why, there's no W in dandelions, said Sarah in surprise. The young man drew the bill of fare from his pocket and pointed to a line. Sarah recognized the first card she had typewritten that afternoon. There was still the raid splotches in the upper right-hand corner where a tear had fallen, but over the spot where one should have read the name of the meadow plant, the clinging memory of their golden blossoms had allowed her fingers to strike strange keys. Between the red cabbage and the stuffed green peppers was the item, Dearest Walter, with red hard-boiled egg. THE GREEN DOOR Suppose you should be walking down Broadway after dinner, with ten minutes allotted to the consummation of your cigar while you are choosing between a diverting tragedy and something serious in the way of vaudeville. Suddenly a hand is laid upon your arm. You turn to look into the thrilling eyes of a beautiful woman, wonderful in diamonds and Russian sables. She thrusts hurriedly into your hand an extremely hot buttered roll, flashes a tiny pair of scissors, snips off the second button of your overcoat, meaningfully ejaculates the one word, paraphilgram, and swiftly flies down a cross street, looking back fearfully over her shoulder. That would be a pure adventure. Would you accept it? Not you. You would flush with embarrassment. You would sheepishly drop the roll and continue down Broadway, fumbling feebly for the missing button. This you would do, unless you are one of the blessed few in whom the pure spirit of adventure is not dead. True adventurers have never been plentiful. They who are sat down in a print, as such have been mostly businessmen with newly invented methods. They have been out after the things they wanted, golden fleeces, holy grails, treasures, crowns, and fame. The true adventurer goes forth aimless and uncalculatingly to meet and greet unknown fate. A fine example was the prodigal son when he started back home. Half-adventurer, brave, and splendid figures have been numerous. From the Crusades to the Palisades, they have enriched the arts of history and fiction and the trade of historical fiction, but each of them had a prize to win, a gold to kick, an axe to grind, a race to run, a new thrust in thrice to deliver, a name to carve, a crow to pick. So they were not followers of true adventure. In the big city, the twin spirits, romance, and adventures are always broad-seeking, worthy wooers. As we roam the streets, they slyly peep at us and challenge us in twenty different guises. Without knowing why, we look up suddenly to see in a window a face that seems to belong to our gallery of intimate portraits, a sleeping thoroughfare. We hear a cry of agony and fear coming from an empty and shuttered house instead of at a familiar curb, a cab driver deposits us before a strange door, 
which one, with a smile, opens for us and bids us enter. A slip of paper written upon flutters down to our feet from the high lattices of chance. We exchange glances of instantaneous hate, affection, and fear with hurrying strangers and passing crowds. A sudden rainfall and our umbrella may be sheltering the daughter of the full moon and first cousin of the sidereal system. At every corner, handkerchiefs drop, fingers beckon, eyes besiege, and the lost, the lonely, the mysterious, and the perilous, changing clues of adventure are slipped into our fingers. But few of us are willing to hold and follow them. We are growing stiff with the ramrod of convention down our backs. We pass on, and some day we come, at the end of a very dull life, to reflect that our life has been a pallid thing of marriage, a satin rosette kept in a safe deposit drawer, and a lifelong feud with a steam radiator. Rudolf Steiner was a true adventurer. Few were the evenings on which he did not go forth from his hall bedchambers in search of an unexpected and egregious. The most interesting thing in life seemed to him to be what might lie just around the next corner. Sometimes his willingness to tempt fate led him into strange paths. Twice he had spent the night in a station house. Again and again he had found himself the dupe of ingenious and mercenary tricksters. One evening, Rudolph was strolling along a cross-town street. Two streams of people filled the sidewalks. The young adventurer was of pleasing presence and moved serenely and watchfully. By daylight, he was a salesman in a piano store. He wore his tie drawn through a topaz ring instead of fastened with a stick pin, and once he had written in the editor of the magazine that... June's Love Test by Miss Libby had been the book that had most influenced his life. During his walk of violent chattering of teeth and a glass case on the sidewalk seemed at first to draw his attention with a qualm to a restaurant before which it was set, but a second glance revealed the electric letters of a dentist sign high above the next door. A giant man, fantastically dressed in a red embroidered coat, yellow trousers, and a military cape, discreetly distributed cards to those of passing crowd and consent to take them. This mode of, dent of dentistry advertising was a common sight to Rudolph. Usually he passed the dispenser of the dentist's cards without reducing his store. But tonight the man slipped on one of his hands so deftly that he retained it there smiling a little at the success of this feat. When he had tra travailed a few yards further and glanced at the card indifferently, surprised, he turned it over and looked again with interest. On one side of the card it was blank, and on the other was written in ink three words, the green door. And then Rudolph saw three steps in front of him a man thrown down the card. He picked up his as he passed. It was printed with the dentist's name and address and the usual schedule of plate work and bridge work and crowns 
and spacious promises of painless operations. The adventurous piano salesman halted at the corner and considered. Then he crossed the street, walked down a block, recrossed and joined the upward current of people again, without seeming to notice the man. As he passed the second time, he carelessly took the card that was handed to him. Ten steps away, he inspected it, and the same handwriting had appeared on the first card. The green door was inscribed upon it. Three or four cards were tossed on the pavement by the pedestrians, both following and leading him. These fell blank side up. Rudolph turned them over. Every one bore the printed legend of the dentist's parlors. Rarely did the arch spirit of adventure need to beckon twice to Rudolf Steiner, his true follower. But twice he had been done, and the quest was on. Rudolph walked slowly back to where the giant man stood by the case of rattling teeth. This time, as he passed, he received no card. In spite of his gaudy and ridiculous garb, this man displayed a natural barbaric dignity as he stood offering the card suavely to some, allowing others to pass unmolested. Every half minute, he chanted a harsh, unintelligible phrase akin to the jabber of a car conductor and grand opera. And not only did he withhold a card this time, but it seemed to Rudolph that he received from the shining and massive man's countenance a look of cold, almost contemptuous disdain. The look stung the adventurer. He read it as a silent acquisition that he had been found wanting. Whatever the mysterious written words on the card might mean, this man had selected him twice from the throng for their recipient, and now seemed to have condemned him as de deficient in the wit and spirit to engage the enigma. Standing aside from the rush, the young man made a rapid estimate of the building in which he conceived that his adventurer must lie. Five stories high it rose, a small restaurant occupied the basement. The first floor, now closed, seemed to house millinery or furs. The second floor, by the winking electric letters, was the dentist. Above this polygot bum of signs struggled to indicate the abodes of palmists, dressmakers, musicians, and doctors. Still higher up, draped curtains and milk bottles white on the window sills proclaimed the regions of domesticity. After concluding his survey, Rudolph walked briskly up the high flight of stone steps into the house. Up two flights of the carpeted stairways, he continued, and at its top paused. The hallway there was dimly lighted by two pale jets of gas, one far to his right and the other nearer to his left. He looked towards the nearer light and saw within its wan halo a green door. For one moment he hesitated. Then he seemed to see the contemptuous sneer of the juggler of cards, and then he walked straight to the green door, knocked in against it. Moments like these that passed before his knock was answered measured the quick breath of true adventure. What might not be behind this green panel? Gangsters? 
cunning rogues baiting their traps with subtile skill, beauty, love with courage, thus planning to be sought by it, danger, death, disappointment, ridicule, any of these might respond to that tremorous rap. A faint rustle was heard inside, and the door slowly opened. A girl, not yet twenty, stood there, white-faced and tottering. She loosened the knob and swayed weakly, groped with one hand. Rudolph caught her and laid her on a faded couch that stood against the wall. He took a swift glance around the room by the light of the flickering jet gas. Neat, but extremely poverty, was the story of this room. The girl lay still, as if in a faint. Rudolph looked round the room excitedly for a barrel. People must be rolled upon a barrel. Who? No, no, that was for drowned persons. He began to fan her with his hat. That was successful, for he struck her nose with the brim of his derby, and she opened her eyes, and then the young man saw that hers, indeed, was the one missing face from his heart's gallery of intimate portraits, the frank gray eyes, the little nose, turning pertly outwards, the chestnut hair, curling like tendrils of pea-vines, seemed the right end reward of any of his wonderful adventures. But the face was woefully thin and pale. The girl looked at him calmly and then smiled. Fainted, didn't I? she asked weakly. Well, who wouldn't? You try going without anything to eat for three days and see. Goodness, exclaimed Rudolph, jumping up. Wait till I come back. He dashed out the green door and down the stairs. In twenty minutes, he was back again, kicking at the door with his toe for her to open it. With both arms, he hugged an array of wares from the grocery and the restaurant. On the table, he laid them, bread and butter and cold meats and cakes and pies and pickles and oysters and a roasted chicken, a bottle of milk, and one of red-hot tea. "'This is ridiculous,' said Rudolph, blusteringly, "'to go without eating.' You must quit making election bets of this kind. Supper is ready. He helped her to a chair at the table and asked, Is there a cup for the tea? On the shelf by the window, she answered. When he turned again with a cup, he saw her with eyes shining rapturously, beginning upon a huge dill pickle that she had rooted out from the paper bag with a woman's unearing instinct. He took it from her laughingly and poured out a cup of milk. "'Drink that first, he ordered, "'and then you shall have some tea, "'and then a chicken wing, "'and if you are very good, "'you shall have a pickle tomorrow. "'And now, if you'll allow me to be your guest, "'we'll have supper.' "'He drew up a another chair, "'and the tea brightened the girl's eyes "'and brought back some of her color. "'She began to eat with a sort of dainty ferocity "'like some starved wild animal. "'She seemed to regard the young man's presence and the aid he had rendered her as a natural thing, not as though she undervalued the conventions, but as one whose great stress gave her the right to put aside the artificial, the artificial for the human. But gradually, with the return of strength and comfort, came also a sense of the little conventions that belong, and she began to tell him of her story. It was one of a thousand such in the city of yawns at every day. The shop girl's story of insufficient wages, further reduction by fines, 
that go to swell the store's profits of time lost through illness, and then of lost positions, lost hope, and the knock of the adventurer upon the green door. But to Rudolph, the history sounded as big as the Iliad or the crisis in Junie's love test. To think of you going through all that, he exclaimed. And you have no relatives or friends in the city? None whatever. I am all alone in the world, too, said Rudolph, after a pause. I'm glad of that, said the girl promptly, and somewhat it pleased the young man to hear that she approved of his bereft condition. Very suddenly her eyes dropped, and she sighed deeply. I'm awfully sleepy, she said, and I feel so good. Rudolph rose and took his hat. Then I'll say good night. A long night's sleep will be a fine thing for you. He held out his hand, and she took it and said good night. But her eyes asked a question so eloquently, so frankly and pathetically, that he answered it with words. Oh, I'm coming back tomorrow to see how you are getting along. You can't get rid of me that easily. And then at the door, as though the way of his coming had been so much less important than the fact that he had come, she asked, How did you come to knock at my door? Then he decided he must never let her know the truth. One of our piano tuners lives in this house, he said. I knocked at your door by mistake. The last thing he saw in the room before the green door closed was her smile. At the head of the stairway, he, pa he paused and looked curiously about him, and then he went along the hallway to its other end, and coming back, ascended to the floor above, continued his puzzled exploration. Every door that he found in the house was painted green. Wondering, he descended to the sidewalk. The fantastic man was still there in his red coat. Rudolph confronted him with his two cards in hand. Will you tell me why you gave me these cards and what they mean, he asked. In a broad, good-natured grin, the man exhibited a splendid advertisement of his profession. There it is, boss, he said, pointing down the street. But I spect you is a little late for that first act. Looking the way he pointed, Rudolph saw about the entrance to a theater the blazing electric sign of a new play, The Green Door. I'm informed that it's a first-rate show, sir, said the man. That agent, what represents it, presented me with a dollar, says to distribute a few of his cards along with the doctor's. May I offer you one of the doctor's cards, sir? At the corner of the block which he lived, Rudolph stopped for a glass of beer and cigar. When he had come out, he buttoned his coat, pushed back his hat, and said stoutly to a lamp post on the corner, All the same, I believe it was the hand of fate that deposited the way for me to find her. Which conclusion, under the circumstances, certainly admits Rudolf Steiner to the ranks of the true followers of romance and adventure. Thank you.